Well, hello and good day, marvelous podcast family. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you're doing fantastic, and I'm sending you all of my prayers, love, good vibes, well wishes, positive intents, your way to you, your family, your friends, wishing you all of the best. We've got a phenomenal episode of the show for you today. We've got John Turk on. He is a former National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. We're talking about his new book, Tracking Lions, Myth, and Exploration. Uh, This is a phenomenal interview. If you haven't um, seen our first interview, uh, search John Turk. I can't remember which interview it was, but it was phenomenal. He tells a story about being in Siberia on this track, like way out in nowhere, getting injured, meeting this Siberian shaman, a storm coming in. It's absolutely bonkers. And if you see John Turk, if you watch this on Odyssey, because they've deleted my YouTube, well, they gave me it back. Now now I can't upload it, and it's just going through the whole rigmarole. So if you want to watch it, find me on Odyssey, and also find me on Rockfin forward slash Matt Belair so you can see the image. Uh, But he's like a regular, you know, old man. He's not a kind of mystical, spiritual type of guy. And just his stories are phenomenal. He's really done some absolutely incredible things. So this podcast is fantastic. We talk talk about how uh, Mulanat healed him, um, the tracking a lion, uh, why if you lose the magic in your life, you use your power, you lose your power, the power of getting into the now, why each journey is unique, the warrior spirit, uh, courage, the Morani warriors, uh, the genocide of the village that he witnessed, uh, how words can get twisted, and uh, why you can't expunge evil from the world, but you can from yourself, uh, our basic human functions and so much else. So this is a phenomenal episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. Please share it as far and as wide as you can. Leave a review. The censorship is absolutely bonkers, uh, but we are still getting the word out there. So you can find the show on Libsyn, on Spotify. They are deleting some episodes, but I highly recommend going over to mattbelair.com, becoming a member. They've deleted Patreon. So if you want to throw in a dollar or three dollars, um, or something else, you can go to mattbelair.com, click the membership, you'll see some donations over there if you want, or you can even have it for free. No sweat at all, just send me an email, matt at zenathlete.com, and I'll get you a link so you're um, up to date with all the episodes, and, it, and it's, you know, keeping them somewhere where the internet can't destroy them. Um, and if you want to support and there isn't a donation amount there, just let me know, and I'd, ha- I'd happily make you a link. So just appreciate any support. I'd also like to thank my sponsor, the Pure Body Extra Zeolite heavy metal detox it is a phenomenal product that has been tested that has been vetted that works to take out heavy metals in the body and they are absolutely everywhere i highly recommend um, getting a high quality water filter uh, taking the zeolite and you can get a, a bottle for 50 dollars off so it only costs uh my listeners 13 bucks and you go to the forward slash matt m-a-t-t b that's the goodinside.com forward slash Matt B. And you can get a bottle of the heavy metal detox for just 13 bucks to try it out. They also have a phenomenal greens drink. And that's been my basic protocol for a while. I'm doing some other stuff. I am getting a little bit better at eating. But uh, even that itself is very powerful. And I know the people that have been starting to take it have uh, noticed a difference as well. Because the heavy metals are an issue. And um, 
So yeah, that's that. And for those of you guys who really want to get clear, you want to be a member of a community, you want to make a difference in the world, you want to get clarity so you can move towards power and purpose, you want to go from a job to a vocation, you want to architect your life deliberately, uh, check out the Soul Compass course, check out the Quantum Heart Hypnosis. And if you want a deeper training, join the Atomic Alchemy Mastermind group weekly. You can email me, matt at zenathlete.com and enjoy a call as my guest. It is a very powerful group of like-minded spiritual individuals who are looking to navigate this time with peace, purpose, and power to support each other and to make a difference moving forward. So if you're interested in that, just hit me up. Uh, it's a beautiful group and we'd love to have you and I'm happy to invite you as my guest to check it out. So that's it. The best way to support this show is to do three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. And uh, let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we dive in. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, empowerment, connection, purpose, courage, faith, and get ready to enjoy this absolutely incredible episode with John Turk. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. As you know, we are facing extreme censorship alongside many other truth seekers out there. If you want to support this show, please go over to mattbelair.com and sign up for the email list and become a member for exclusive and censorship-free content by donation or for free. And most importantly, consider doing three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. Today's guest earned a PhD in organic chemistry in 1971 and was nominated by National Geographic as one of the top 10 adventurers of the year in 2012. Between these two bookends, he co-authored the first college-level environmental science textbook in North America, followed by 35 additional texts. At the same time, he kayaked around Cape Horn, across the North Pacific, from Japan to Alaska and around Ellesmere Island. During extended travel in the Northeast Siberia, his worldview was altered by Mulinat, a Siberian shaman, and his later books reflect these spiritual journeys supported by adventure storytelling and integrated with anthropological view of the whole of the role of art and mythology in human development he is the author of the new book, Tracking Lions, Myth and Wilderness in Samburu. Welcome back to the show, John Turk. <laughs> hey, Matt, it's good, to be <laughs> back. it's good to see you and talk with you again. Oh, I'm so excited for this. When I saw the email from you, I was like, yes, you know, I remember our first podcast. And for those who are listening to this now, make sure you go find that. I don't even know, maybe episode 73 or something. Look up John Turk. I'll make sure it's easy, easily accessible in the show notes. That episode was mind blowing your stories and what you've done and Mulanat and your experience there. And some of the other things you shared were, were truly uh, profound and mind blowing, but also grounded and humbling. And, and, uh, you know, I really just enjoyed those stories and you're a person who lives life to the fullest. And it's amazing to see the new book. Cause I think the last time we were chatting, um, you're like, yeah, I'm going to go spend some time with lions or something super intense. I just kind of giggled to myself and you, and you continued on your life adventure. So for those, um, who are new to you, 
and, and maybe hearing you for the first time. Do you want to give us a little bit about your background? What, you know, what led you to this life of travel and adventure and all the things that you, you know, get up to? Yeah, well, you covered it pretty well or started it anyway in the introduction in my bio. But as you said, I had a PhD in organic chemistry. I was headed for a life in the laboratory, a life in academia and doing well. Everything was on track. Yeah. And then and this is one incident incident, but I was out in Colorado in an alpine meadow in the springtime snow had just melted little patches of snow around flowers the first spring wildflowers coming up and I'm walking around in this meadow and my dog just goes crazy my dog starts digging in the earth and putting his nose in the earth and smelling the earth and just explosive joy <laughs> and I go wow and I follow the dog and the dog digs a hole and the dog smells and I stick my head in the earth, you know, so that I got this big rim of dirt around my face and my nose is in the earth and I'm smelling spring. I'm smelling this explosion of life coming back up into the earth, out of the earth, e the earth. And I, I spend the afternoon doing this with my dog and we're so it's not happy, it's just explosive. And I came home to dinner that night and I go, I can't spend a life in the laboratory. I'm done, I'm finished. There's too much wonder out here. And that started my life as, a, as an adventure. I had no skills, no skill sets. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. And my first four expeditions ended up in disaster. So I decided to solo kayak around Cape Horn. I mean, looking back at it now, it was really dumb. But I, I did it. I tried it. And I didn't make it. I got caught in a storm in the Antarctic Ocean. And I got tipped over. And I dislocated my shoulder. My boat broke in two. And all my food and gear spilled out. And I'm swimming around in one hand, holding my shoulder in the other through the surf. So my first expeditions didn't work out that well. And then on a long third or fourth time, I'm, I keep failing. And I come to the conclusion, I've got several choices. I can end up dead, I can quit, or I can learn how to do this. And it quickly became apparent that there's a skills game. I had a set of skills that I needed to learn, but also there was a mental game that I had learned to achieve in the laboratory, in the PhD chemistry world, but I hadn't learned the mental game of being humble in front of great power. And I had to learn that. And then I, I started slowly succeeding at my expeditions. And then as you explained briefly in the bio, we were paddling from Japan to Alaska, 3000 miles, it took us two seasons. It was the second season and 
we're in this village. Well, how did we get to the village? We're paddling along and it's a beautiful day and we're behind schedule. We're trying to get to Alaska before the ice moves in again, before winter comes. And we see this village, should we stop in the village? No, 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 we shouldn't stop. We gotta go, we can make another 10 miles. And then all of a sudden this storm comes out of nowhere, out of nowhere. Like I look on my barometer watch, no pressure change and the winds are blowing and the sea is spraying up and it's all crazy. Like, so we say, well, we better go to town. We could, you know, get munched out here. So we paddle into the surf and this woman comes up and she talks to me in English. I mean, we're way out in Siberia and Russia. And she says, welcome, it's good to see you. The grandmother created the storm to bring you to our village. She wants to talk to you. So what goes on in your brain, like dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum, you know? Like, I'm not in a position to be cynical. I'm not in a position to question. I'm in a position of acceptance. There's a storm out there. If I try to paddle out there, I'm dead. There's a house over there. I can smell bread baking in the oven. There's food, there's warmth, there's shelter. And the only thing between me and salvation is acceptance. So I say, wonderful, man. We'd love to talk to the grandmother, you know. And that launched five years. I ended up spending off and on five years in that village. Okay, so we're going to jumpstart now through a whole bunch of stuff that uh, happened that we talked about uh, five years ago. And now I'm 75. And my, my best expedition days are behind me. If I go out and try to do the things that I did when I was younger, I will kill myself and my partners. It's not a good idea. We're done. But what I'm really interested, what I spent those five years in Siberia thinking about was where our power comes from. What is power and where does it come from? And how does it manifest? And so when I was 65, I did the hardest expedition I've ever done, an expedition that when I was 45, I dreamed, I thought about, and it was impossible. And when I was 65, I did it. It involved uh, circumnavigating Ellesmere Island. It involved traveling half a marathon a day, every day for a hundred days. And you're not in running shoes and t-shirt and shorts. You're in Arctic clothing, you're pulling all your food, you're pulling your gear, you've got a heavy sled, you're pulling over rough jumbled sea ice, you're in some of the harshest terrain on the earth. And I did it, and I did it on Moulinot's power. So now we're gonna to jump to the present book, we're jumping through many years. Oh, and just so people know that Moulinot was the name of this Siberian shaman, right? 
Right. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, yeah. it's all right. I'll just fill in for them. And yeah, in the other podcast, you go into detail about that experience and it's uh, it's mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. So. She was born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II. Uh, she was 96 when I met her and she was a healer in the old way. And she, not to repeat what happened before, she healed my pelvis. I spent five years off and on in the village and so on. So now let's jump to 2018 or 19 or one of those years. Uh, so I'm in Shamburu, which is Northeastern Kenya. It's desert. It hasn't rained in three years. I'm at this camp. We're involved in a lion study. It's very confusing to me what this lion study actually is. But anyway, day three, a lion eats a cow. The Samburu people and the Samburu are very much similar. They're related to the more familiar Maasai. They're herding people in Northeastern Africa. They've been herding cattle for many generations. Cattle are very valuable. They're very poor. A lion ate a cow. This is a big deal. So the camp manager, who's a woman named Tina, American woman, asked me to track the lion with Deepa, the village headman and chief tracker. So sure. What are we going to do when we find the lion? You know? <laughs> Are we going to train it not to kill cows? Are we going to tell it it's a bad lion? There was a lot that was going on there that was confusing to me. But anyway, okay, we're tracking the lion. So I was kind of thinking that I know I'm a white man. I'm, you know, from a distant place. People don't trust me that they wouldn't give me a gun. But I figured the deep of the tracker would have a gun. No gun. And as we're getting ready to go, one of the other people in the camp hands me a club, a wooden club. It's a beautiful instrument. It's nice piece of hardwood with a knot on the end. But it's a club, you see. We got a lion out there, okay? And I look at the club and the, the man, Jawas, who handed it to me, says, do you know how to kill a charging lion with a club and I go no man you know I don't I they never taught me this in kindergarten my mother never taught me this <laughs> this isn't part of a white man in America's upbringing he says I figured that I go okay he says most white men would figure you would bop it on the head right well now I'm feeling a little stupid so I just say yeah right he says that won't work if a lion is charging and it's this far away and you hit it on the head, it's not going to work. Can't, can't kill a lion that way. I said, okay, how do you kill a lion? <laughs> and then he leaps up in the air with the agility of an NFL running back, spins and swings sideways. He says, you hit the lion on the side of the neck with this club. It'll stop it dead. No problem. 
So I try it and he looks at me and shakes his head in dismay, you know, like, well, if that's the best you can do, that's the best you can do. <laughs> so off we go tracking this lion with this club. Well, at first, I'm really angry. I'm angry, like you're putting me in danger. At least give me a machete, give me a fighting chance, give me a piece of steel. And there are guns around, why aren't we carrying a gun? What's going on here? And then I go back through my whole history of adventuring. You don't get angry at gravity. You don't get angry at the Arctic sea ice. You don't get angry at a storm at sea. Anger isn't gonna help you. Get rid of it, out of here. What's gonna help you? It's wonder, it's observance, it's absolute presence. You don't know how this situation is gonna unfold. You don't know what to do, but presence is gonna, is your only ally right now. So I'm going along and all of a sudden I'm explosively joyous. This is wondrous. I'm looking into the, looking for the lion, man. Looking through the bushes for this dun colored camouflaged creature behind the bushes, looking, listening, smelling. And then comes another thought, and this is the genesis of the new book. <laughs> How did our ancient ancestors, Stone Age ancestors, 100,000 years ago, survive and strive and do well, thrive out here on this savanna? when they were slower and weaker than the lion, had poor hearing, poor eyesight, no claws, bad teeth. How did we survive? Because that's what I need right now. And that's where I'm getting to is, is looking for where the power comes from. And that's the genesis of the new book. Wow. Well, I remember when uh, you sent me the description of the book. I think there's one thing where it says uh, tracking a lion with, with, a, with a stick in my hand. And I was just like, <laughs> I talked to, you know, shouted out to the wife. I was like, hey, listen to this. I was like, I get to interview John again. I was like, how hilarious is that? Somebody like going tracking a lion with a wooden club. That's the only thing you had. Um I can't imagine how intense that would have been. Do you want to go a little bit deeper? I was going to ask this as my first question. So I'd love for you to kind of dive in right away. You know, you talked about, you know, you're questioning what is power and where does it come from? So maybe this is written about in the book um, extensively, but I'd love to hear your thought on that because when you do the adventures that you have done, there is an inner power. There's a connection to something greater, right? You're humbled by the sea. You're humbled by nature. You're humbled by uh, life and how powerful it is when you're putting yourself in those situations and, and where it comes from and survival and all that kind of thing. Um, especially when you're injured, you know, flailing around in the sea, I can't imagine how terrifying that would be. So you're somebody who's pushing the limits of human potential and exploration. And I think also faith 
as well in, in the way that you adventure. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on power and where it comes from and, and anything else you'd, you'd like to discuss as far as the book and, and the lion you know, tracking experience. Wow, <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to back up a little bit. One of my journeys on the tundra during this time with the Koryak people, I met another elder, another old woman, Marina, and she told me, if you lose the magic in your life, you lose your power. She didn't tell me if you lose your AK-47 or your keys to your bulldozer, you lose your power. If you lose the magic in your life, you lose your power. So let's start with that. And then I know people are going to say, what is magic? What are you talking about? It's just word salad. Okay, just hang that, put that a little bit to the side. So now many years later, we're in the Nari Strait on the northeast coast of Ellesmere Island between Ellesmere and Greenland. It's a narrow neck of land, 12 miles wide, and you have the entire North Pole ice pack coming through a current, pulling this ice through this constriction, this bottleneck. So you have 10 hundred billion gazillion tons of ice moving and getting constricted and pulled by this current, which is generated by the spin of the earth. This is a cosmic force, you see? And we have to get through this in a kayak, okay? And we look out there and the ice is smashing into each other and hitting against the cliffs and chunks of ice as big as a football field are flying in the air. and. Ice chunks are dancing, rainbows in the sky, and it's like, we got to kayak through this thing. Well, we're going to get munched. But if we stay here, there's essentially no rescue. Winter will come, and then we're going to freeze to death and starve to death. So what do we do? So we, we're hanging out here for a, a long period, 17 days. This isn't like a five-minute process. This is almost three weeks. And one of my friends who's an extreme endurance athlete in his own right, texts me, if you think the barrier is too great, don't try to overcome it. You have to go through it. And I go, right. I'm not tougher than the Arctic ice pack. I'm not tougher than the spin of the earth. I can't see this as a problem. This is not my problem. <laughs> Something will happen and it's going to be okay. And this is, now let's go back to if you lose the magic in your power. Something magical is going to happen is going to get me through it. And you know what? If nothing magical happens and I die, that's going to be okay too. So any outcome is okay. And you start with that. And we eventually got through it. So now we're back to tracking the lion with the club. So let's go back in time. So now I take an anthropological journey into the origins of humanity 
because this is where I'm going to find my answers. I know modern coaching trains athletes to fine tune themselves and win Olympic medals, but I was interested in going back and seeing what's in my DNA that's going to allow me to do this. So I run into this interesting conundrum because approximately 70,000 years ago, human beings almost became extinct. There were only 2,000 Homo sapiens left on the planet. And in fact, the powers surrounding us, the forces of the lions and the hyenas and all these other creatures and all these difficulties were overwhelming and we we're dying out. What allowed us to survive? It was not tools. Tool invention came later. We discovered art. We discovered myth. We discovered ceremony. We discovered dance, music. That's what gave us the power to survive. And that's anthropological fact. And I've checked that with all kinds of anthropo anthropologists. So this gives you this wondrous feeling in your chest. It's the power of community. It's the power of love. I'm out here with Deepa, man. And Deepa and I are committed we're going to defend each other to death. If the lion comes, it's got to get both of us. Because if the lion is charging deeper, I've got to charge the lion with my club. And beyond, behind that, we have this power of music, dance, art, myth, storytelling, ceremony. And I can't define it for you but I know it's there. And that's what this book is talking about. And that's where I'm going in my old age now that I'm an ancient old guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, I love all that. You bring up a lot of really great points. One of them is, you know, when you're talking about your, I think it was your Arctic journey, just the idea of accepting death, like that's, that's okay. And I feel like that's one of the things that people need to come to grips with to lead a, a life of freedom. Um, I feel like a lot of people, they live with their lowest common denominator of abilities and the safest possible scenario of life, the safest job, the safest circumstance just to get food. But on the flip side of that, when you bring in the wonder, you bring in the magic and you start to tune into what you're capable of, uh, whether it's a big journey like you're taking or even the journey of life. Like, what did you come here to do? What did you come here to experience? Who did you come here to be? You're living in the wonder. And from that place, you have to first be okay with your death and, and understanding that, you know, your life isn't uh, infinite. You're going you're gonna to leave here. So the quality of your life comes becomes very important. So one to ask, like from this, 
journey and this experience, how did you get to the point of like bravery or courage when people like a, a normal person might think, wow, these adventures are amazing, but I can't do that because, or I can't change my life because how do you see the human experience and how can we get more in touch with our, our power, our capabilities and our courage to follow the path of who we truly are? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's really simple. It can be summed up in one word, three letters. Now, N-O-W. It's being in the now. And a, a, a commitment, a realization that being in the now is a wondrous place to be. And that's where it all starts. And the important thing about being in now in the now is that there are 100 million billion trillion ways of being there if there are seven and a half billion people in the planet there are seven and a half unique journeys into the now so don't in any way shape or form think that you have to uh, track a lion in sambu with a wooden club to get there that's just not where we're going man I'm not a concert oboe player. So I can't, couldn't write a book about Zen and the art of oboe playing. But an oboe player gets into the now by playing the oboe. A mother gets into the now by being with her children or a father gets into the now. There are a million ways to do the, oh yeah, there's meditation. You can meditate, you know. <laughs> but the point is, that do each have our journey and to me that journey into passion into contentment into wonder is the only journey to make i'm not telling you how to make it i'm just saying you look inside yourself and say where is my journey and then you drop everything and I'm not making this up. It's like everything else is superfluous. Yeah, I know we have to eat and you have to go to the grocery store and give the man the money to get your strawberries. I got that. But there's a way to do that. And so, and I'm not making this up. My journey is so important to me that it is more important than worrying about whether I'm going to die or not. That's worrying about whether I'm going to die is something that's not in the now. It's something in the future. So let's not go there. Wow. Well, that's powerful. And you said one thing I feel like is very important. It's, uh, you know, it's the taking the leap of faith to watch the magic happen or the universe respond. And you have to be committed to the passion or what you want to do to see the universe work its magic. And when you do that enough, you see that it's a repeatable pattern. So when you're talking about going out there with the lions and getting really angry at first, then all of a sudden you start to go on your memory banks and you say, whoa, I've been here before. The universe has responded. How am I going to 
apply that once again, because this is a terrifying situation. You know, I'm just sitting here with a club and thinking about my word. Am I going to have to try to go out of line with a frigging club? It's a, it's a bit of a ridiculous circumstance. I wish I was better equipped for this. Um, but, you know, the primal nature of that, I feel, is is just so empowering um, for many reasons. But it doesn't have to be that intense for a regular person to, uh, you know, and who's living a more traditional life to experience. It's, you know, reconnecting to your passions and the magic in your own life and the ways that you want to pursue things and how you get in the now and how you have a zest and magic for life in your own way. You know, we're not supposed to follow, you know, other people's past where we want to make it our own. And so I'd love to ask you, in your book, you talk a little bit about the warriors at the end. I don't know if they were actual tribal warriors, but I feel like right now today with all of this uncertainty, uh, people need to, or, or people could benefit from a little bit more of a warrior spirit because there's definitely psychological operations going on. There's a lot of divide and conquer. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. And I'm curious if, if this book addresses anything around the warrior spirit or what you meant by that. I don't know if you got to experience warriors or, or what that chapter is all about. Yeah, that's a good, all your questions are great, Matt. Yeah. We have a negative concept of warrior. Warrior is a big term. A warrior can be a guy with a gun who wants to cut off your head because he, you have the wrong religion. That's one kind of warrior. And I talk about this in great detail in the book because what happened in human history is that we built this cooperation this tribalism, this storytelling, this myth generation. And that gave us the power to survive. But then, that was when we were in small tribes, 20, 30 people. Then we gained agriculture and we built cities. And now we were in groups of 100,000 or a million. And everybody doesn't know everybody. And there has to be some kind of a structure to survive, to just run, pick up the garbage, get the sewer out of sewage out of there, move food around. There has to be some kind of government. And the people who manage government learned that the old tricks of tribalism could be manipulated to evil. So people started creating artificial tribes. And you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're a, a Yankees fan, you're a whatever. And I'm different, so I'm better, so I can kill you. And all of a sudden, there started to be these wars. Well, there were wars in the old days, but with cities and armies, it became much more bigger, institutionalized, and deadly. So these are what called mass movements. Anybody who gets up and says, I'm going to create a tribe for you, you can join this tribe, and then we can go hate somebody else. 
This is happening all the time. I don't have to name names. If you don't get it, <laughs> you, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> so there's a lot of tribalism, a lot of wars, a lot of anger, an incredible amount of anger in the world at other people that we don't know. So I'm in Samburu now after I've been tracking the lion, all of a sudden I find that people are tracking me and they wanna take a video and cut off my head and post it on Facebook. Like this is really personal. Like I never met these people. I have become a symbol of something else and they wanna kill me for that. So when I talk about warriors, I don't mean those people. I'm <laughs> they are followers of mass movements. And I end my book by talking about our ways of avoiding mass movements. But the Marani, the warriors that I was traveling with, were a group of warrior monks, the likes of which I have never met before in my life. Monks, yes, they were young men, 18 or so. They become Marani and they don't have any contact with women for the next 10 or 15 years. They live in the bush. They provide for the village. They take nothing from the village. So one day we were on patrol. There was uh, Somali road pirates out there uh, looking to do bad things. And this time we had guns and we're on patrol. We're running a perimeter of the camp and we're out all, one of the villages and we're out all day. And nobody really told me we were on perimeter. The, the head of the camp told me that we were tracking a lion. Well, we crossed the lion track at a perpendicular angle and did not follow it. We were looking for something else. We were defending the village. And we spent a hot, thirsty day out in the desert, armed, dangerous. This is serious now. And we get back at dark at night, and they open the boma, the gate to the village, and the warriors stand erect and they will not accept a cup of warm goat milk. They will not accept any food or sustenance from the people they have been defending. This is all about honor. Those are warriors. <laughs> and not the guys out there who wanna cut off my head and run a, a, a video on, you, on Facebook, that's not what I'm talking about. Wow. Holy smokes. That sounds incredibly intense. Um, you know, there's this whole thing right now going on with uh, 
you know, this toxic masculinity in our culture. And I'm hearing it more and more. And it seems like a lot of people want to demonize uh, men and sure some men do bad things. Pe- people do bad things. Uh, but the divide and conquer aspect of it is, is getting a little, um, you know, used for nefarious ends, I think. And, and when people talk about warriors or defending or strong men or whatever the case, that's how I see it. I see uh, men who want to defend their family, who want to do what's right, who want to live with honor, who um, will protect when necessary. And, you know, you going out to those, um, those places, you realize some people, uh, for lack of a better term, they might be evil, or they might be bad, or they might have nefarious intent, they want to take away your free will by harming you by, you know, and to me, I love this definition, anything that seeks to restrict or bind by definition is Luciferian, or bad, you're taking away someone's free will by imposing on them, right? And what a warrior does, and what a what a good person would do was defend the weak, defend people who would have that intent. But what I've noticed in Canada and a lot of the states and um, other countries where we've had a lot of freedom, their minds can't imagine that people or groups of people intend that harm and want to take that freedom away from you. From you. So the men who want to stand up against that sometimes were demonized um, for standing up, which is which is complete lunacy. Uh, but I learned this through through martial arts and how you would. Uh, wield that power and how you would use it and how you would cultivate it because those warriors those real warriors are assigned to those who want to oppress that's a huge problem we have to go through that group that will defend you know with honor you know all of this tribe Uh, we can't do what we want now because we have this big shield that is in our way and so i feel like that's incredibly powerful i'd love to hear just a little bit more of that story though like you say in the book that you started to get hunted and, and things like that. How did that uh, work out? What happened and, and what did you learn and what else do you want to share about that? Because that sounds uh, incredibly intense. Well, yeah, it was incredibly intense to back up a little bit. 10 years or so before I came to this group of villages, they the government troops had attacked the villages and in genocidal helicopter attacks and killed a lot of people. Killed nursing mothers, killed one mother who had just given birth like half an hour before shooting up the villages. And there was this one kid, Taipi, who was just this wonderful kid and he was going off to become, he was going to college. He wanted to study to be an engineer. He had a little Honda 90 and we used to do donuts in the sand with the Honda 90. And he had drawn a picture when he was, when I met him, he was around 18, but when he was like 10, he had drawn a picture of one of these attacks and it showed the helicopters and the bullets and people lying and bleeding. And uh, it was all done in children, um, in child kind of cartoony drawing. But you felt the horror of that. And so we have this going on. And then we have the very ancient 
tribal battles with the Somalis and all of these other Al, 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 Algeries. No, I forget the other group. I'm sorry. But it was another group of terrorists. And the Samburu are in the final four. They've held their grounds. They're tough. And you go off into the savannah with them and you feel that these guys are competent people and competent warriors in defending their village, not in attacking another village. They were not on the offensive. So all this was coming down, an election was happening in Kenya and things were getting crazy. A couple, one person, uh, engineer who was working on a water system in the village got shot in town. Nobody quite knew what happened. They shot him in the knee. They crippled him for life. A guy pulled a knife on Deepa and uh, Deepa had to uh, disarm him. Deepa is a guy you don't fool with. <laughs> and, and then the camp manager called me in and said, John, you live in Montana, right? I said, yeah, well, just curious. Do you ever hunt? Are you hunt deer or elk or anything like that? Are you, you hunt? I said, yeah, I, I bring home meat for my family. Oh, okay. Are you a pretty good shot? And I looked at the woman, I said, Tina, where's this conversation going? Why are you asking me? And she said, well, if real trouble happens, can we count on you? There's more guns in this village than you know about. I said, this isn't my war. I wanna, I wanna go home. I don't wanna be in this war. This isn't my war. I don't wanna kill somebody. And then there was this whole shenanigans. It wasn't that easy, actually. By this point, the situation had deteriorated enough that it wasn't actually that easy to leave. So it was another week or two before I could actually get out. But the lesson here, everything Every word we use is weighted. It's a complicated world we live in. When you talk about honor, it can be twisted into mass movement hatred. When you talk about love, it can be twisted into killing. When you talk about warrior, it can be the warrior who wants to cut off your head or the warrior who wants to defend the nursing mother. And it gets a little crazy. You see, people are complicated. We have what I call these think too much, know it all brains, and we twist things around. And we start with something simple and we make it complicated. And then we can twist it into 
somewhere that we didn't mean to go in the beginning. And I get kind of confused after a while. And the only thing that to me is unambiguous, and this is how I end my book, is that nature tells no stories. I know nature can cause an avalanche to wash you down a mountain and schmuck you good. I know that. I've been there. But that's not a story. Nature tells no stories. Nature is a sponge that cleans you out of your stories. We're humans. We live in the 21st century. We're not going to go back in caves and eat roots and berries. I got that. But at the same time, the farther back we go into our Paleolithic Stone Age past and then into our animal cells, and then we learn to cooperate with nature, to live in this community that everything is gifted. I've been reading about the mycelium, the fungus, the mushrooms in the forest, and how the mushrooms are warriors. They take nutrients from a healthy tree and give it to the weak tree to keep the whole forest alive. The mushroom tells no story, but it has a vested interest in keeping the whole forest alive. And we as people have a vested interest in keeping the planet alive. And what we it's absolutely imperative. I don't often say we should do this or we have to do this, but we have to get out of our silly games in our head and talk to nature and work with nature and keep nature alive because that's that's us. That's the that's love. That's everything. That's the only way to go. Wow. Well, I didn't, I didn't know it came down to that being in, uh, being in Africa, like having to think about that choice and, and make that choice. When you're talking about the stories I'm reminded of the quote, it's like, he who controls the narrative controls the people or he who controls the information controls the people. I think that's from, you know, George Orwell, but I think there's older, um, verses of that going back to Aristotle and even Socrates Socrates just talking about you know that the story will shape what people think and what they believe and how they behave and we have these stories that run us and some of these stories can be positive and helpful and life affirming and some of these stories can be destructive and I feel like it's unfortunate and it seems obvious that many of these power structures that have control of these narrative uh, create these narratives and they use them for destructive purposes. And so it leaves good and honorable people who want peace, you know, who want uh, to help, who want to live in cooperation. It makes it challenging, right? You saw that as a, in a microcosm, you could want peace all you want, but if someone's coming to kill you, uh, you can either sit there or you can do something about it. And uh, that's a really challenging place to be in. And, I try to think about what, what would be useful. And 
and growing your spirituality, your strength with uh, your, your connection with spirit and God and nature, whatever that is for you, um, you know, preparing and understanding your environment, uh, seeing it as it is, not as you want it to be. So for example, if you're in lion habitat, you know, you don't open up a, a big steak and leave it there and sleep out in the open. You know, you put some precautions up because you know where you are and you know this from your, um, your expeditions, right? You prepare accordingly for what is, what is coming. Cause if you don't prepare accordingly, you can experience great harm. And so it's just taking reality and taking the circumstance as it is. And so these are really heavy topics when people want to kind of take your free will away and they want to put you in a situation that you don't want to be in. And so in this kind of world that we see ourselves in, where people might try to force you into that decision where, you know, you have to make a really intense choice like that in your travels and your experiences with different people and different cultures all over the world, have you seen any themes or anything that you would think would contribute to a more peaceful and a more cooperative uh, human existence. Do you think that, you know, these oppressive forces and these evil forces are necessary for the life experience and they're just always going to be there? Or have you learned anything that will help us just navigate these times and move towards more peace, more cooperation uh, and more goodness, right? Like, you know, we don't, 90% of people don't want people in helicopters shooting people. You know, we don't want people in power who don't have the best interests for all, you know, in line. We want people who are good and cooperative. So have you learned anything or have any ideas on how we might be able to influence things in a positive direction? (laughs) (laughs) I, I wrote in the preface of the new book, Tracking Lions, Myth and Wilderness in Samburu, that is a a fool's errand to attack these questions, this exact question you asked me on this, my last book, because it's a really big question. Um, I don't think that anybody is gonna be able to expunge evil from the earth. And I don't think that my book or anybody's book or Jesus or Buddha or anybody is going to be able to expunge evil from the earth. But you can expunge evil from yourself. And if that's all you can do, that's, man, that's, that's, a, that's a good start. And when I spent these five years in the Koryak, in the Koryak with the Koryak people in, in Vivenka and Kamchatka, I learned that the basis of our functioning, our, our functioning and the planet comes from three sources, the shaman, the hunter, and the tundra. The, same, the shaman is our spiritual journey, our journey into the cosmos, a journey into feeling the great wonder of it all, of communicating with Kutcha, the raven god, of being an animal, of, of living in this world where our worldly needs are less important than our journey into some sort of a blissful, contented state. But 
At the same time, we also have to eat. And when people read one of my older books, The Raven's Gift, they think it's a book primarily about the shaman because that gets the most press. That has the most selling power. But the hunter is also important. And the hunter, I mean, as the person, the practical side of us, the, the practical person. And we need stories in our head to be the hunter. The hunter follows tracks. And when you look at a track, you want to know what that animal is doing, where it's going, what it's thinking. These are stories. So we have stories that are essential for our survival. And then we have stories out there that are manipulating us to create evil. So it becomes important to separate the two because we're not, we're a storytelling people. We tell ourselves stories every day. We live in the past, we live in the present. We, we generate our perception of what's, of how we're gonna fill our stomachs from a looking at, at the narratives around us. This is essential. But then I come back to, remember it was the shaman, the hunter and the tundra. I come back to the tundra because if you have any question about how to behave, about what's true or what's monkey business, Ask the earth, the earth will talk to you. I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass now, which is a beautiful book. And she talks about a wild strawberry or a huckleberry or something and seeing that as a gift. And every time we take a gift, we receive a gift, we give something back in respect or honor or something real. Some, something tangible, as in we're growing a garden, we feed it. So we, we wanna accept the earth as this great entity that tells no stories and that gives us gifts. And if anybody tells us otherwise that we should be, as soon as somebody tells a story that's got anger or hatred in it, you gotta realize that that isn't the story. So anyway, to answer your question, the shame in the hunter and the tundra, and will I save the world and will the world turn into a blissful place tomorrow? No, I don't think so. But this is what we can do. This is the only journey to take. Well, John, I, I love that. I think that's brilliant. Uh, I wrote it down why you can't expunge evil from the world, uh, but you can from yourself. Uh, I think that's, that's brilliant. And that's true. And that's the thing that's up to us. You know, that's, that's always where we get our choice. I've been saying recently something that became clear. It's like, you know, our environment can poison our minds through different means. It can poison our food. Uh, but only we can poison our souls. That's a choice that we make. And it's very important to understand that free will choice that we have 
even in the face of evil. And I love what you said too, about the stories, you know, if the story has hatred in it, uh, you know, if it has anger in it, then that's probably a story that's going to lead you down a darker path, right? It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what's right or what's good, but there needs to be a way to address things in a very powerful way because, you know, stories with evil and, and anger and all that kind of stuff, um, maybe you're going to be manipulated, you know? And when I look at some of the bigger problems in the world, I wonder, you know, what can I do about it? And it has to be a positive solution. So if I don't want this, right, if I don't want uh, war or human trafficking or famine, what do I want? Um, I want uh, everybody to have enough. I want myself to live in a, in a way and in a, in a manner that can be cooperative in my environment. And if there's ever a way for me to expand that energy, then I will push that button. I will do that thing. But if I spend all day being very angry at the people who are doing that, it's not going to be helpful. I have to look at building the systems, building the new, putting out the education in some way that's going to counterbalance that. If that's indeed what I want to do, because the evils in this world are unfortunately never ending, but we can all choose to live in a very powerful way. So, you know, I feel like for myself anyway, when I see these things, it's a little bit daunting. And especially when you experience it head on, you, you recognize and you see it. I've in my travels, I once talked down a guy with a machete that was going to kill a man. And uh, you know, I've seen eyes like that twice and they were dead. It was a bit terrifying, but you know, it, it exists and it wasn't anything special. It wasn't that I knew martial arts or anything that was able to um, allow me to talk down this person and not die. It was, you know, life or spirit or something just moved and moved my body and put me there and began speaking words. And, you know, that if he were going to chop me down, I don't think my martial arts skills would have helped there. You know, a six foot two guy with a machete in the dark with two or three other people there, you know, uh, it, it's beyond me. You know what I mean? And so uh, I don't know. I'm going to kind of get sidetracked, you know, by the, by this battle we're in. And I see it right now a little bit as a battle, this, this big transition, there's a lot going on in the world right now. And I'd be curious your thoughts for how you would recommend people navigate these times. Um, maybe their family, you know, they have families and things are changing. Things are very uncertain. Things are scary. And you, you're someone who has mastered fear and has been able to adventure and uh, learn a lot of great lessons. So what would you share to a younger generation that's looking and seeing the, the landscape of the world be pretty frightening, a lot of things being exposed and a lot of um, anger and a lot of hatred, you know, being directed and uh, divide? How would, you, how would you recommend somebody navigate this time in a little bit more peaceful and a, in a little bit more powerful way, if at all possible? <laughs> really scary matt it's really scary and you have to add climate change into that mix uh, yes there's a lot of political anger and hatred and a lot of people out there who are nasty but there's also a real potentially cataclysmic climate change happening in the next well, happening now but it could accelerate it could be unbelievable in a few years. So how do you handle that? Um, I would like 
to be able to say that I can get together and join hands with my buddies and we can stop this and we can turn this ship around and we can change the world. But I, I think I'm afraid that the chaos is, is greater than we can handle right now. So how, how do you respond on a human level? You, you give out as much love, as much compassion, as much true, go back to the old ways of storytelling as a way of keeping people together. It's loving your neighbor, man. It's loving your neighbor. So if you, you know, I give this example. I live in Western Montana, which is politically very diverse and divisive. And there's a lot of one side, the other side, a lot of anger, a lot of the voting. There's a lot of political anger. But at the same time, I live in a little community where we live on a private road. We have to maintain the road. So the tree blows down and the root wad, the windstorm comes up, a tree blows down and the root wad pulls out a chunk of the road and we have to fix the road. So we all get together and we get our chainsaws and our crowbars and our shovels and we go and we fix the road, you see. And all of a sudden it's not Republican, Democrat, Biden, Trump. It's we have our chainsaws and our shovels and we have to fix the road. And this is a real thing. If we don't, the road will wash out and we won't be able to get to town. And somehow, I don't know how or if it's gonna happen, but we have to look through all this mumbo jumbo and fix the road. <laughs> get out your chainsaw, man. Gas it up, sharpen it up, pull the drawstring or the pull string, whatever you call it. And let's, let's work together to fix the road. And we're not gonna talk about politics. We're, we're a community again. We're humanity. Now, that sounds very Pollyannish. Are we all going to get together and fix the road? No. But we can start headed there. The other thing, I think, and that's the human thing. The other thing is that the um, United Nations International Panel of Climate Control just came out and said just last week, if we do nothing, the climate change is gonna worsen for the next 30 years. My grandkids are in their 20s, mid 20s, 25, 35, 45, 55, 30 years of increasing climate change, hurricanes, fires, droughts, floods. So we have to have that level of acceptance. 
Bad things are going to happen. Bad things are happening. People are losing their houses and their lives as we speak in the wildfires out here in the West where I live. It's happening today. So at some level, we have to just accept the joy of the now and not get too stressed out about this. At the same time, we I don't mean complacency. You think about skiing an avalanche slope or something like that, right? You're not going into it blind, deaf, and dumb. I'm going to go ski cement mixer chutes, okay? It's a big, steep chute, man. You don't want to get caught in there if something goes wrong, right? Before you jump in, you do everything you possibly can to think this through so you're going to have a positive outcome, right? You're not just complacent, la-di-da, let, let it all happen, whatever happens, man, it's okay, I'll jump in. No, 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 no. We're pragmatic people, we want to survive. But once bad things happen that we have no control over, we have to adapt. And I tell my grandkids that, you're gonna to have to be loose on your feet. Don't be committed to what they tell us we have to have or we have to be. We're gonna to have to think this through on the spur of the moment. <laughs> and we're gonna to have to not get angry, love our neighbors, and just manage it as best as we can. I know if your house burnt down yesterday, that's gonna be a hard thing to, to accept. And there are people out there whose houses burnt down yesterday, but there's no other way forward. Well, John, yeah, I love that. It's practical. Um, there are definitely challenging times going on. And I agree that the way we get through this is together and you can't make everybody cooperate, but you can be the person who cooperates with your neighbor. You can be the person who uh, is adaptable and resilient and strong and looking for solutions and looking to cooperate. And that's our individual choice. It seems like there's a lot of individual choice going on right now, um, but also a lot of resilience and adaptation necessary and we're the most adaptive species on the planet so let's remember that and uh live in the moment the best we can i, I feel like all of that's really sound advice um it's been a great pleasure chatting with you again if people haven't uh, listen to our first podcast or you have, I invite you guys to go back to that original podcast. I'll, li I'll link it in the show notes because there's absolutely more incredible stories that are truly mind blowing, you know, mixed with a lot of life wisdom and, um, you know, beautiful stories. So thanks so much, John, for you being such an inspiration, you know, and, and sharing your work and sharing your stories and sharing the lessons from just doing a lot of extraordinary things. And hopefully it inspires people to, uh, figure out what their passions are and what their magic for life is. Because, you know, when you said that the magic for life, I remember going through uh, law and security in school and they just kind of talked about how some people would die um, from getting shot and they shouldn't have died. Right. They just thought they were supposed to die and people who should have died didn't, you know, and you hear about when people get ill, this fight for life, this will to live. And, 
you know, we need to figure out what inspires us about life, who we uniquely are, who we came here to be, uh, how we came to participate in this and understand that we are strong, we are capable, and we have the divine spark, you know, soul, God within each of us. Um, if you want to believe that, it's a powerful perspective for me anyway, to believe that I was created by something uh, beyond time and space that I can even understand uh, for a reason, or I could believe that I am here for no reason, no time, no space. But after you have a few of these very powerful experiences, you know that there is something, there must be something because it's too random and too miraculous for it to be just a circumstance when you begin pushing the envelope and really living from your heart and really living in alignment to spirit and your inner voice and whatever that means for you. So uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add or that you wish that I'd asked you before we wrap this up? No, no, that's wonderful. Um, if I may, I just give a way for people to contact me. My website is www.johnturk.net. And my new book is Tracking Lions, Myth and Wilderness in Samburu. It's scheduled to be released September 3rd. Amazing, John. Well, I highly recommend people check out your work, check out your books, check out our previous podcasts. Every every book and every story that he shares is, is really captivating and uh, enjoyable and also with it with a powerful message. So thanks so much for your work, John, and, and for coming on the show again today. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you for your insightful questions and wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Well, have a great day. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you in the next episode. Peace. <laughs> there you have it the absolutely incredible john turk i hope that you enjoyed that episode and if you did please share it far and wide on literally every social media platform you can uh, to help get the word out there i highly recommend you check out our first episode together it is episode 69 uh, it is phenomenal it's a really really great episode so if you like this one you're gonna love that episode it's even more mind-blowing than this one because he goes into detail about mulanat and his experience over there so i highly recommend you guys checking that out. Uh, I want to thank my sponsor, The Good Inside. You can check them out, thegoodinside.com forward slash Matt B and get a bottle of heavy metal detox for just 13 bucks, which is $50 off. And if you guys want to dive deep and you want to look at some of the training I offer, the quantum heart hypnosis, the soul compass course, and the atomic alchemy mastermind group, go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching. I'll give you any resource that I have um, that is, you know, either online or in digital copy or if you want to join a call as my guest to support you in your journey there are tools strategies um you know and ways to really just figure out who you are that are powerful and effective and that's really what i teach and what i try to figure out is who am i as a per person how do i help people connect to their soul to their life purpose you know help them do it themselves and then navigate that with peak performance techniques and strategies that i've learned over a lifetime of study and when you apply those together it's a very powerful formula for living a fulfilling empowering life that serves community and you feel uh really fulfilled which is the most important thing and that's always um it's always in 
a nice cooperation with the environment. Like it's always cohesive to everything, to family, to relationships, to business, to nature. When we live in our life purpose, we're really cooperating with ourselves and our spirit and ingraining into what's true, what's natural, and what's uh, right for us as an individual rather than just doing life by default just to make some money to get by. That's a part of it. There's nothing wrong with it, but we all have uh, something more to offer or to align to. And it's just a matter of um, knowing what that is and listening through a process. So that's it. Um, let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we close this out. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, happiness, faith, courage, inspiration, and get ready to enjoy the rest of your day. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.